Hello and welcome. I'm David Beard, contributing editor for Daily Coast Elections. And I'm David Neer, political director of Daily Coast. The Down Ballot is a weekly podcast dedicated to the many elections that take place below the presidency, from Senate to City Council. Please subscribe to The Down Ballot on Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and review. The spring elections happened and we did it. We did it. Today on The Down Ballot, we are, of course, going to recap the extraordinary progressive victory for the Wisconsin Supreme Court race. There was also another awesome progressive victory in the race for mayor of Chicago. On a down note, there was a maddening party switch in North Carolina that just gave Republicans a supermajority in the state legislature. And then our guest this week is a fascinating former state representative from Alaska, Jonathan Christ Tompkins, who is going to tell us all about the unusual politics and cross-party coalitions in America's last frontier. We have an awesome episode on tap for you, so let's get rolling. Beard, we finally did it. I cannot believe it. It has been so long in coming, but we finally won a majority on the Wisconsin Supreme Court on Tuesday night. Can you believe it? I know, at long last. There's, it feels like there have been so many of these elections over the years. Oh my God. Well, this is the first progressive majority on the court since 2008. And boy, oh boy, our candidate did it in fine fashion. Judge Jenna Protasiewicz, you've heard us talk about her on this show many, many times. She defeated conservative Dan Kelly by 11 points. That is a massive, massive blowout in a state that often sees close elections statewide. And Dan Kelly really showed us why he's now managed to lose not one, but two elections for state Supreme Court by double digits. He is such a prick. This is what he said last night. He said, quote, I wish that in a circumstance like this, I would be able to concede to a worthy opponent, but I do not have a worthy opponent to which I can concede. I mean, what a bitter piece of crap this guy is. He then went on, he said, I wish Wisconsin the best of luck because I think it's going to need it. Well, what Wisconsin definitely does not need more of is Dan Kelly. And Republicans should feel really, really worried about what the results showed last night. You know, we talk sometimes about their bedrock stronghold in the Milwaukee suburbs, the so-called wow counties. That's Waukesha, Ozaukee, and Washington. These are rock rib suburban Republican counties that have really formed the basis of every big win statewide for Republicans for decades and decades. And Kelly still won them, but he only won them by an 18 point margin, which was half of what George W. Bush, for instance, won this group of counties by two decades ago. And it just shows the further erosion in suburban support for Republican and conservative candidates nationwide, and especially in Wisconsin. And what really should be troubling for Republicans is that as these more affluent, better educated areas move toward Democrats, as we've mentioned before on this show, these are high propensity voters. These are the kind of people who show up when you have an election in April of an odd numbered year. And losing that base of support means you're going to be relying on voters who simply show up with much less frequency. And I really think that's a huge problem for Republicans. And, and boy, you really hate to see it. 
And these wow counties are really the difference to when you think back to Wisconsin, when it was sort of seemingly dominated by Scott Walker, when Democrats tried to beat him in the recall and they couldn't seem to beat him up until 2018, when he was finally narrowly, narrowly lost to a state like Michigan or Minnesota, which shares a lot of characteristics with Wisconsin, is that these very populous suburban counties had remained blood red. While we've seen in a state like Michigan, Oakland County had been moving to the left and becoming bluer and bluer, you know, really throughout this century. And so Wisconsin's Republican base is really centered around these counties. There's not any other huge population areas in the rest of the state. Like, obviously, there are a number of counties that are very Republican, and some of them have a fair number of people, small to mid-sized cities or towns, but there's nothing like these big suburban counties that have provided in the past such a huge amount of the Republican vote in the state to balance out Madison and Milwaukee. With Republicans starting to weaken there, and particularly in um, Ozaki, where we've seen some really narrow Republican victories only by a few points, you really then start to have the Republicans in a tough spot where they have to either claw these suburban, well-educated voters back into the fold or have to get into these two southern type numbers in rural areas where, you know, in the South, Republicans win these rural white voters 90-10 or more sometimes. And they don't do that in the upper Midwest. And so they're going to have to um, if they're going to stay competitive, they're either going to have to really rack up those rural votes or they're going to have to wait, find a way to claw back these suburbs. And so it's a real question going forward, you know, how they're going to tackle that. So we can't just talk about what happened. We have to talk about why it matters, why we have spent so much time talking about this race. So Protosawitz is going to be seated on August 1, and that will give progressives a four to three majority on the court. And there are at the very least, two enormous, enormous issues that the court is going to confront sooner rather than later. One is abortion. The state currently bans all abortions. It's the only state that Biden won in the entire country where there is a total ban on abortion. And that is due to this zombie law from 1849 that got reanimated after the U.S. Supreme Court struck down Roe v. Wade last year. That law, that 1849 Wisconsin law, is currently being challenged by the Democratic Attorney General, Josh Call, and eventually that case is going to come before the state Supreme Court. Protosawitz was very careful on the campaign trail not to say how she would rule in that case, but she was also unusually explicit in emphasizing her support for abortion rights. And I really think that we are in a new era of judicial races where candidates are more comfortable sharing what their values are. And it's obvious, it's very obvious that abortion was a central reason for her dominant win. She ran ads heavily on the topic. She also did well in these once Republican suburban areas. And there is real reason to be optimistic that abortion rights will be restored in Wisconsin once the Supreme Court finally gets its say. The other area is just as big in a different way, and that is gerrymandering. Last year, the state Supreme Court stepped into the gap when the Republicans in the legislature and Democratic Governor Tony Evers had an impasse over new redistricting maps, and the court took over the process and said any new maps should be changed as little as possible from the old maps, only enough to account for changes in population. 
those old maps were extreme Republican gerrymanders. So the conservative majority on the court said, we're essentially going to come up with this made up rule that allows these gerrymanders to stay in place. Protosewitz was also very critical of those maps. She said that they were rigged. That is her exact word. And the other liberals on the Supreme Court dissented very bitterly from that conservative opinion that locked in those GOP gerrymanders. So a progressive group has already said that as soon as Protosewitz is sworn in, that they will bring a new challenge to those maps. And there's very good reason to think that those maps will get overturned and replaced with much fairer maps. And Wisconsin is a swing state that more often than not leans a little bit Democratic. If Democrats can retake the legislature, it's amazing what could happen next. We have tremendous models from states neighboring Wisconsin to the east and the west in Michigan and Minnesota. These are both states where Democrats took back power last year, full control over state government in both of those states. And there has just been a tremendous renaissance in small d democracy in both of those states. And really anything is possible now that the Supreme Court in Wisconsin is in the hands of fair-minded jurists who have democracy and the voters at heart. Yeah, and I'll just add, there was a lot of complaining from the other side about the forthrightness with which Protasevich talked about um, the gerrymandering. As you said, she said it was rigged um, and the fact that abortion was such a big issue. And I frankly don't give a shit. That's where I am at this point. We've seen the Republican Party weaponize the judiciary. You know, obviously that became clear nationwide with the Dobbs decision. We're in a place where either you can have appointed judges by Donald Trump decide things for you, or you can elect judges who will do the things that the American people want. And it's very clear that the people of Wisconsin want abortion to be legal and they want fair maps. And that the way that they have to do that is to elect a progressive judiciary and a progressive Supreme Court that will rule in that favor, then that is the way democracy has to work in Wisconsin right now. I couldn't agree more. Honestly, I find the parade of Supreme Court candidates going before the US Senate lying through their teeth about their respect for precedent and pretending that they don't want to overturn abortion rights. That's all such bullshit. It's so insulting. So at least be forthright with us and, you know, have respect for the voters. And I think that's what Protosewitz really had. She had respect for the voters to make up their minds. And that's exactly what they did. Look, I think electing judges is a terrible system. I think having politicians appoint them is also a pretty terrible system. We probably should have some sort of independent commission appointing judges in the way that we've seen independent redistricting be a success in a number of states. But in the meantime, since that's not what we're going to have, yeah, let's elect the good guys to the bench. And that's exactly what happened on Tuesday night in Wisconsin. One race did not go our way in Wisconsin, unfortunately. That was the special election for the 8th State Senate District in the northern Milwaukee suburbs. This was conservative turf that became vacant after a Republican senator resigned late last year. Republican Dan Knodel beat Jody Habish-Sinekin, but it wound up being quite close. It was just a 51-49 margin, and this was a rather conservative district that, again, Republicans had gerrymandered. Donald Trump would have carried it by five points, so that represented a pretty strong overperformance by Habish-Sinekin. And Knodel is 
almost certainly going to be vulnerable in the future, especially if the Supreme Court overturns those gerrymandered maps, like we were just saying. So he should not get too comfortable. Back to better news was the results for the Chicago mayoral runoff, which also took place on Tuesday night, where progressive Cook County Commissioner Brandon Johnson narrowly defeated conservative Democrat and former Chicago Public Schools CEO Paul Vallis. Now, this, of course, was a race where Vallis had placed first in the first round, but Johnson was able to consolidate the progressive vote and the African-American vote to end up with a close victory. He won with 51-49. The AP has called the race in his favor. And this was really a an impressive victory for progressives in Chicago. I think the, you know, the talking heads very much believed that Vallis was going to win this race. They looked at the Eric Adams victory in New York City, who is definitely, you know, the more conservative of the options. And the work of a lot of progressive groups, a lot of unions, you know, came together and was able to really elect one of the most progressive, if not the most progressive mayor Chicago will have ever seen, is a great victory. And I'm really excited to see what he's going to do for that city. One other reason why I'm glad, of course, it's a much smaller reason, but you know that the pundits and talking heads and reporters were all ready to publish stories or start talking about how the tough on crime message of a guy like Paul Vallis had progressives back on their heels, yet another failure, Democrats in disarray, et cetera, et cetera. Well, those are going to have to gather dust for at least a little while longer. Those hot takes were all proven quite wrong. And something else to point out, Vallis and his allies widely outspent Johnson, but Johnson was able to make the case that Vallis really was quite conservative and out of step with Chicago, which of course is a dark blue city. And now he has four years to really make his mark and show Chicago exactly what they voted for. Yeah, and we've seen that that tough on crime messaging that Republicans are so in love with has really not been terribly successful. It wasn't terribly successful in 2022 where it was used. It didn't work in Wisconsin. There was also something Kelly tried to do. It didn't work for Vallis. There's really not a lot of evidence that voters are going and voting for a more conservative option because of the crime issue, no matter how much you know opinion writers in various papers want that to be the case. Now to end on really an infuriating note, um, we have to talk about what happened in the North Carolina State House, where in a complete surprise, Democratic State Representative Tricia Kaufman switched parties this week, handing North Carolina Republicans the supermajority that they need in the chamber to override Democratic Governor Roy Cooper's vetoes. And the Senate, of course, already had the necessary supermajority. So this gives the GOP caucus free reign to pass any legislation that they want as long as they're unified behind it. Now, party switches happen from time to time, particularly we've seen in the past few decades in the South where very conservative Democrats have moved to the GOP. Now, is that what happened here? Was this an extremely conservative Democrat sort of out of step with the party? No, she's generally been seen as a pretty moderate Democrat, you know, pro-choice, pro-LGBT rights. Is she maybe in a deep red district and she just like was trying to save herself for re-election, something like that? No, Biden won her her Charlotte district by 23 points. So there was no sort of need here for her to switch parties. It wasn't seemingly an ideological thing. No, this was a 
personality conflict, I'd guess you say. What I'd call it is extreme, extreme pettiness. By all accounts, including her own, Kaufman switched parties and handed North Carolina Republicans this power because people were mean to her after she missed a veto override vote that allowed a loosening of gun regulations in North Carolina. Now, there were a couple of Democrats who missed this vote that allowed the veto override to pass. She was one of them. There was understandably a lot of blowback because people were upset that Democrats could have stopped um, this bill and prevented it from becoming law. And this very small number of Democrats didn't show up, didn't vote, and as a result, it became law, particularly in the wake, of course, of the Nashville shooting. People were upset. I'm sure some people sent her some mean tweets. I bet people emailed her mean things. And you know what happens when you're in a public official? People say mean things to you sometimes, and you're supposed to be an adult and be mature enough to get over it. And the fact that her response to people being mean to her is to switch parties and to hand a massive amount of power to the dead enders in the GOP to affect the lives of millions of people in North Carolina is just incalculable to me. It, it doesn't make any sense. I cannot believe somebody would be this petty to do this and to just blame the other Democrats for not being nice enough to her to keep her around. You're not supposed to be a Democrat because people are nice to you. You're supposed to be a Democrat because you want to make things better for the citizens of North Carolina. And so if your point in being a political official is to just your own self-aggrandizement, then at least we know now and we can go and defeat her in 2024. But it is just infuriating that she has gone and done this out of personal peak. <laughs> I co-sign everything that you said. That was quite the rant and a very justified one. That does it for our weekly hits. Coming up, we are going to be talking with former state representative Jonathan Christ Tompkins, who had the privilege of representing one of the most interesting and unusual states in the union, Alaska. We're gonna be talking about Alaska politics with him. So please stay with us. Joining us today is Jonathan Christ Tompkins, who is a former Alaska state representative and political activist and someone I personally have known for many years. Jonathan, it is fantastic to have you on the show. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Um, I guess near and beard if I if I am getting the, the um, best way to address both of you. You have it exactly right, or the Davids collectively. So, Jonathan, you got involved in politics at an extremely young age, which is in fact how we met. And that was during the grassroots organizing for the Howard Dean presidential campaign all the way back in 2003. And you ultimately became the Alaska chair of the campaign. So tell us how you got involved and what that whole journey was like. Yeah, uh, I got uh, sort of politically obsessed at a very uh, unusually young age. Um, I think I was 13 and I basically wholesale, I discovered electoral politics and basically wholesale transferred my sort of obsessive interest in baseball and sports statistics to electoral politics. And I think I'm not the only person who sort of had that sort of sports to electoral politics, like, uh, uh, transition of, of interest. But, um, so I, I was I was really young and um, following the races closely and learning about the political geography of the country and all of that. And that was right around the time, 2002 midterms, that the presidential primary cycle was starting to ramp up. And um, 
I sort of assiduously researched all the different candidates or at that time prospective candidates from Dick Gephardt to uh, Tom Daschle, Wesley Clark, all these people who, you know, actually haven't really talked about or thought about much for the last 10 to 15 years um, and came across Howard Dean. And um, I, <laughs> I had then, as I think I still kind of have, a, a very sort of practical uh, electability first sort of framework to evaluate candidates. And Howard, um, as the four-term governor of Vermont, just uh, sort of checked all the boxes that I thought would make the most, most formidable candidate to defeat George W. Bush for his reelection. And, and that basically came down to three things. He was against the Iraq war, which I was opposed to and also ultimately thought was going to be a political albatross for those who had initially supported the war. He was fiscally conservative. I think most Americans actually don't know Howard was an incredibly stingy governor of Vermont and the Progressive Party in Vermont, I think, owes partly its origins to sort of being um, sort of a pushback on Dean's uh, tenure as governor. But I thought that sort of fiscal conservatism would play well electorally. And then he was socially liberal at the time. So got very involved. Um, and, you know, it's the first real internet campaign. And so I, you know, it was just like an email address and a name. And I assiduously didn't disclose my age and <laughs> ended up kind of getting really involved in the heart of the campaign at a very early time. Yeah, that really was an amazing time. We were I guess on the vanguard of digital organizing, we were using Yahoo groups to communicate. There were various groups, you know, New York for Dean, Wisconsin for Dean, obviously Alaska for Dean. Folks rallied around Dean in large part because of his very vocal opposition to the Iraq war. But many, many months before that issue really took center stage, the prior year, in fact, there was this article I remember, and I wonder if you remember it too, in the American Prospect called The Darkest Horse. And one thing that really stood out about Dean was that he was vocally opposed to the Bush tax cuts. And at the time, I thought the Bush tax cuts were completely insane. And yet Democrats really weren't speaking out against them in the way that Howard Dean was. And I found that very attractive. And I had a friend who was from Vermont, and I remember so well, he said this to me, Howard Dean can look a Republican in the eye and spit. And I thought that's the kind of backbone that we need because, you know, you mentioned Dick Gephardt. He was there standing behind Bush for the signing ceremony for the Iraq war. And Howard Dean was saying, you know, no, we need Democrats with spine. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think there was a part like a constituent of the democratic party that didn't feel like that they had a leader or a voice in that 2002 through early 2004 period of time. And I'm actually not really convinced in retrospect, John Kerry was that person either. I think it's sort of this sort of incidental series of events and, and Kerry ended up being the nominee. But I think if you were to sort of like Monte Carlo simulate that primary 10 different times, I'm not sure Kerry would end up being the nominee all 10 of those times. Uh, but Dean definitely, yeah, spoke to that part of the party base and um, it was like it was a it was a tremendous sort of coming of age experience, um, politically speaking, to be a part of that campaign and the sort of un unadulterated idealism and enthusiasm was was like a completely infectious way to sort of get involved in electoral politics. Yeah, and I have to credit 
Howard Dean's campaign for really getting my start too, because you know he really fueled the rise of the blogosphere, or I guess I should say that they were both part and parcel of, of the same movement. And you know, I was in my mid twenties, just really turning on to politics and down ballot politics, really electoral politics. And he was uh, a seminal figure at the time. And I think uh, really was inspirational for so many of us back then. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I kind of feel that campaign in some ways is sort of like looking at the um, the alumni of Bill Belichick at the Patriots. And I mean, I think there's like a Wikipedia page dedicated to this where like all his former assistant coach coaches and uh core you know offensive defensive coordinators etc i'm actually not really a football fan but like know enough to know that he's this like seminal figure <laughs> who has you know dozens of acolytes who themselves have sort of gone on to do all sorts of impressive things i feel like um all the people involved in the dean campaign from a lot of electeds across the country right now um to other people behind the scenes who um are are making good things happen i mean it's just like an incredible alumni network um, and I mean, there's been a, you know, a reunion or two, I actually think there should maybe be another sort of get together here as we approach the 20 year mark. But yeah. That'd be really fun. Now, while you two were getting involved with the Howard Dean campaign, I was an impressionable young North Carolina Democrat. So I supported John Edwards. And so I'm going to move us along past, past 2004. And I'm going to move us to 2012 when you were um, just wrapping up your junior year of college. Um, and there was a state representative seat that had sort of been redistricted and had changed some. And there was a Republican incumbent in your hometown in Alaska, and there wasn't a Democrat running. So you, going into your senior year, decided to jump into that race. So tell us about that race and how you ended up getting elected. Yeah. Well, I so at that point, I'd been pretty deeply immersed in politics for about 10 years. So I, I started the Dean campaign when I was 13. It was like December 2002 is when I first sort of dip my toes in those waters. And uh, this was May 2012, so almost exactly 10 years later. Um, so I was, I was, you know, in college, I was not thinking about running for office. Frank, I've never really had any plans or ambitions to run for office really at any point in my life. I always thought I would be sort of a behind the scenes uh, uh, policy staffer, campaign manager, strategist, something like that. Um, but it's just as you're describing that uh, there was sort of this vacuum. Nobody was stepping up to running it. this person. And I myself wasn't thinking about running as this person. But two different people called me coincidentally on the same day. Neither of them knew the other person was calling saying like, hey, we know you've been like really politically involved. I've been working with Alaska Democratic Party Recruitment Committee over the years, the previous I'd say like four to six years. And like, you have a pulse and you live in this district and like what do you think about running the the pulse part wasn't wasn't stated but i, I think it was kind of uh implicit and that um this incumbent had been winning by a large margin so i don't think anybody seriously thought that um that the seat was flippable or winnable um and i had kind of been um getting antsy i was getting ready to sort of move on from college despite still having at least a little ways to go and uh after talking over some friends and taking a really hard look at the data of the district and, and concluding that this incumbent despite winning by large margins actually had a lot of soft support and the district was more fundamentally competitive than his previous margins would lead 
uh, an observer to believe, um, ultimately decided to go for it. And I um, ended up uh, faxing in, it may have actually been the last fax I've sent in in my life, uh, my campaign registration paperwork on my way from New Haven to Alaska, which is through New York, um, from the FedEx Kinkos in Times Square um, before... Uh, it was the it was the the day of the filing deadline, and then and then caught a flight back to Alaska that very next day. On uh, so I fa- faxed it in on June first and flew home on June second, and then uh, just threw myself at the campaign like I had nothing to lose, which I absolutely had nothing to lose. And then the campaign ended up being extremely competitive in the end, and it took a few days or maybe even weeks. I'm not sure for you to actually end up being the winner. Right, it was one of the closest races of the year. Yeah, it was. It was 34 votes um, in the first tally. There was a statutorily required recount, ended up being 32 votes in the final tally. It took uh, just about a month recount included for for the race to be definitively decided. I mean, really, it was the first couple. I mean, on election night. And and the week subsequent, I was actually behind for large chunks of time. And and, I, and for a while, it looked mathematically, notwithstanding a final batch of ballots that included a lot of college students and a number of voters from a, um, a very small community called Port Alexander that sort of threw the race in, in my favor. And so for a while, I thought I actually had lost the race, which was an interesting place to be in psychologically to sort of reflect back on like leaving college, you know, giving this thing my all for the last you know six months of my life and and I actually distinctly remember being very grateful that I decided to sort of like throw everything out the window and just like go for it um even though at the time I thought I had lost it was like one of the best life experiences I I could have uh, hoped for at that age I'm super curious to know you win this race really unexpectedly you're still in college and you show up the state legislature how did your colleagues react to you and your youth um, uh, <laughs> I, I think there's a lot of curiosity. Uh, so the, the legislator I ran against and, and beat, he had been the co-chair of the finance committee for the previous two or maybe four years in Juneau. And so, you know, at least I'll ask, although I think in many states, you know, finance or probes or whatever the name of the committee might be, is a powerful committee. It's a sought after position. And the chair, co-chair of that committee is, is, uh, is a pretty... Um, influential figure within the halls of of certainly the Alaska Capitol. So I, I think there was like an added layer of intrigue that within the Capitol, sort of Bill Thomas, the the gentleman I ran against. I mean, first of all, he was an incumbent, he lost, so that was kind of a surprise. But he also just had a, a big reputation um, within Juno. So there's like, who is this, you know, pipsqueak like kid from Sitka who who left college? Who's who's um, uh, taking Bill Thomas's place. And I mean, I, I also uh, look young. I think I looked even younger than a 23-year-old at the time. So I, I think there's a additional confusion there. I was mistaken for a page or an intern multiple times in the first weeks of, of session, for sure. Um, but I, I mostly just sort of settled in and, and just like focused on sort of listening and learning and and just trying to sort of sponge in the process and get to know people and and not try to make a big impression or a big splash or or get ahead of myself and so i i i mean those first couple of years and i mean even really maybe over the course of all 10 years tried to sort of take a um listen before talk approach and really focus on relationships and and um 
just sort of focus on the fundamentals of, of legislating, if you will. So now something really unusual also happened when you joined the legislature. And that was even though Republicans had won an ostensible majority of seats in the state house, a coalition of Democrats, independents, and even a few Republicans came together to create a majority coalition. And this is not something we've often seen in the US. Of course, these kinds of coalitions are very common in parliamentary democracies, but not here. And I am really curious to hear the inside story on how this alliance came about. And in particular, did you have any inkling while you were running that something like this could even happen? Yeah. And and just to sort of clarify in the chronology. So my first two terms or first four years, we were actually in a traditional minority, the, the Democrats in, in the House. And, um, and, and I mean, not just a normal minority. We were like completely dominated <laughs> by the Republican majority. Um, but in in 2016, after a series of of positive election results in the intermediate cycles, um, uh, things sort of coalesced to lead to this multipartisan coalition that that you just described of D's, uh, moderate Republicans. And then also a, a, a small but growing faction of independence, which is now uh, larger than ever in in the Alaska House. Um, and a lot of it was personality based. I mean, the Alaska. I think I often think about how sort of how replicable this is what we have in Alaska to other states. And there's certainly many reasons to think it's not that replicable. There's a lot of idiosyncratic political culture in Alaska. Um, uh, I mean, just a couple of factors that I, I think allow this to happen in Alaska allowed this um, the last six years to exist in the House um, include that Alaska is the smallest bicameral legislature in the country at 40 and 20. Um, no state has a smaller bicameral. I mean, the unicameral in Nebraska is smaller, but that's kind of its own creature. Um, I mean, another factor is um, and, and, and actually, just to like unpack that last one, I think because it's so small, um, people spend proportionally more time with each other. Like if it's a 100-member chamber versus a 40-member chamber, you're going to have, what's the math on that? 2.5 times more opportunity to get to know each of your colleagues than you would in a 100-member in a chamber, for instance. And you really do get to know everybody. You get to know, you know, like how they take their coffee and what their spouse does and how old their kids are and what they do professionally. And um, so, I mean, I think that is um, something that helps contribute to, uh, or it's at least a, a somewhat unique factor in Alaska. Another factor is like you're in Juneau and you're really isolated. Juneau, as, as you may know, is the only roadless capital. You have to fly in or ferry in. And um, while it's not technically an island, um, it's basically cut off by glaciers and mountains and and you can't drive to Juno. Um even if you could drive to Juno, it would be, you know, about a 20 hour drive through Canada to get to a place like Anchorage. So um so the point is when you get to Juno, you're really there. You know, people rent apartments, they're there all week, they're going out at night. So people get to know each other and it allows for these, you know, cross partisan relationships, I think, to exist perhaps in a in a way um, that doesn't is is not quite the same in other states where maybe you have a large portion of legislators who are you know driving from 
uh, Hartford to New Haven at the end of the day to sleep in their own bed and, and see their family or something like that. Um, so that's another Alaska specific factor. And there's one, one last factor, um, not to, not to like diminish, I think the significance and, and how exciting this coalition is and, you know, hopefully how it can be a model for other legislative chambers around the country. But one last Alaska specific factor thing that's sort of helpful to speak to and also, you know, may just be of interest in terms of Alaska politics, just kind of being an interesting subject is the rural urban divide in Alaska. And we hear a lot about rural urban divide in American politics, certainly, and generally rural areas are like blood red, almost, you know, without exception at this point, anywhere in the country. In Alaska, the rural urban divide is quite a bit different. If you look at a, you know, a sort of blue red uh, um, map of Alaska presidential results, you actually notice there's more blue than red in Alaska, which is, you know, highly unusual for, um, you know, most American states. And a lot of the rural areas in Alaska, um, uh, there's a lot of Alaska native population in rural Alaska, which um, isn't, a, you know, a lock stop stock and barrel Democratic constituency, but certainly leans Democratic, although it varies on what part of the state you're talking about or what native group you're talking about. Um, and then a lot of the um, rural white populations, um, I mean, there's certainly like liberals, Democrats, progressives there. There's also a lot of conservatives, but those conservatives, I think they, they um, uh, rural Alaska is so isolated and remote. There's a lot of dependency on state services. Um, and so there's, there's sort of more of a, a pro-government orientation, if you will, in rural Alaska, even among Republicans. So there's all these factors and it's just all to say in 2016, when this coalition came together, um, the moderate Republicans, especially moderate Republicans from rural Alaska joined together with independents and Democrats. And even though Democrats were a numeric minority, we're able to form a governing majority and that helped for the last six years up until this January. So one tactic that I know you pursued with a fair bit of success that I would love to hear more about is in some of these more conservative districts, you succeeded in helping independent candidates beat Republicans in part by ensuring that there was no Democrat on the ballot. And we've seen Democrats try to recreate these circumstances in some other races. In Utah last year in particular, the Democratic Party there endorsed Evan McMullen. And even though he lost to Mike Lee, it was the closest Senate race that Utah had seen in quite some time. So I would love to hear more about how you actually managed to make this kind of thing happen. I mean, getting making sure that no Democrat files for a race, that's not necessarily so easy to do. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Um, it's quite the subject. And um, I mean, I think it's it's fair to speak a little bit more freely now with the passage of open primaries or ranked choice voting, because fortunately, this sort of very delicate balancing act is, is um, moot under our new system and hopefully will stay that way going forward, although there is a repeal afoot that we're going to have to um, confront in the 2024 cycle. But um, I mean, the short answer is it's very tricky and difficult. We don't, didn't always succeed. Um, I, I think of my um, friend and colleague, Dan Ortiz, um, who represents the district that was just south of the district that I represent. So it's sort of very southern, southeast Alaska. It's about as close to Seattle and as close to coastal British Columbia as you can get in Alaska. And, and Dan's district, I, I can't remember 
the exact numbers off the top of my head, but it's probably like a Republican plus 20 district. Um, certainly Republican plus 15. Um, it, it's the, the reddest district not represented by Republican in Alaska, actually, by quite a long shot. And Dan was first elected in 2014, two years after I was. And we're both from the same region. He actually co- coached his Ketchikan High School cross-country team and debate team when I was a student at Sakai School. And, and we knew each other as sort of like a student coach in these regional meets. And I knew his daughters who, who were my age growing up in the same region. So Dan ran in 2014 for an open seat and he barely won against the Republicans independent. The Democrats didn't field a candidate that cycle, I think in large part because it was just like, you know, Ketchikan, like we're going to win there. Like who really cares? This is the Stan Ortiz guy. He seems very earnest. Like let's, you know, just let's see what happens. So that was sort of a buy. Uh, but in every subsequent election afterwards, 2016, 2018, and 2020, um, there's always this sort of balancing act of like, oh my gosh, is there going to be like a Democratic spoiler who files? And there was at least one, probably more, and Dan would know, uh, instance uh, where there was this very sort of idealistic Democrat where, you know, Dan doesn't have a D next to his name, even though Dan, I think, is incredibly reasonable and shares many of the values that I have and, you know, votes that way as well. Um, just like an incredibly decent, hardworking individual and just the kind of legislator you would hope to have in office. But he doesn't sort of like pass that litmus test of having the right letter next to his name or, you know, maybe he's not liberal enough or, or, or um, you know, progressive enough on like issue X or issue Y. But like, remember, this is Alaska Republican plus 10 state and you know, like I don't think you can have the luxury of ideological purity in these in these kinds of in these kinds of geographies. Um, and so Democrats would get like riled up and like talk about putting somebody up. And I, I distinctly remember when there was one person who was really thinking about running. It was just like many long conversations, just like trying to sort of reason with the person and talk them down. And um, uh, and ultimately, you don't control that destiny. Like if if um, if you know there was a Democrat who was just like dead set on filing, you could do anything about it, and that person would file, and they would win the primary because there wasn't any other Democrat running, and then that person would be on the general election ballot and effectively play the role of spoiler. And this is not a theoretical concern because there are many instances I can think of: one, two, uh, three. Uh, just off the top of my head, where there was a very strong independent candidate in a purple or red district, and there was a Democrat who ended up filing that nobody really wanted to file or have on the ballot. And they basically, if you look at the math, plate spoiler and independent narrowly lost the Republican with the Democrat taking six, eight, ten percent of the vote or whatever. And even if just a fraction of that spoiler percentage had gone to the independent, the independent would have prevailed and be in the Republican. So it, it, it there wasn't a perfect formula other than just persuasion <laughs> and, and asking pretty please and, and just hoping it worked out. Now, we can't talk about Alaska without bringing up Mary Potola's incredible pair of election victories in the special election for Alaska's House seat last year and then for the regular election, of course, in November. So tell us how it was, you know, being on the ground during those campaigns and sort of when the, the belief started to percolate among Democrats, this was really something that she could pull off. Yeah, and there's a lot of fog of war, I would say, in the beginning of that special election cycle, because as you might remember, there's something like 48 or 50 candidates who filed <laughs> for that special election. Um, 
so I mean, it was kind of like the Dambers. There's just like all this pent up uh, uh, electoral interest and ambition for D's and R's and others across Alaska. Um, and Mary was, uh, I think this is fair to say, just like um, maybe not a face in the crowd because like she had held elected office before she'd been a state rep oh i think a a decade plus prior i mean mary was out of the legislature by the time i got there um but i mean there were a lot of other former legislators and i think a lot of people of course were paying attention to republicans especially because um our plus 10 state don young was republican it was just kind of a presumption that you know whoever won would probably be a republican um but a number of things started to happen i mean she retained um, a really excellent consult campaign consultancy in Alaska called Ship Creep Group and um, just sort of scrapped her way to uh, raising early money, um, working closely with Ship Creep Group to do that. Um, and then they they put out a couple of media pieces and, and sort of like helped sort of introduce her to Alaska at large in a way that I think kind of cut through the noise with, you know, these dozens upon dozens of candidates and, and I think especially on the left among Democrats, um, excite, excitements like started to bubble. And then as the summer progressed and, and Mary ended up um, being one of the um, the top four candidates, um, she was the fourth of the four top four candidates. Um, uh, as summer progressed, it, it became really clear that the dynamics of the race with Nick Begich and Sarah Palin kind of going at each other scorched earth style that it would potentially leave the lane for Mary to win. And and as I mean, as many of your listeners may know, Al Gross dropped out um, uh, going into that final special election. So it was just Mary, Nick, Begich, and, and, and Sarah Palin. And then there was, I think, a poll or two that started circulated that, that showed it very close that Mary could potentially win. So I think by July and certainly by August, there was a real palpable sense of opportunity and that this could be one of the big upsets of the year nationally, which which ended up coming to pass. I, I, I should also say like Mary is incredibly charismatic as well, um, which, I, which I think is something that um, especially sort of politicos in Alaska saw early and thought that she had just like tremendous upside potential as a statewide candidate. Um, and her story is amazing too. I mean, her family knew Don Young. She used to campaign for Don Young with her dad, who was a friend of Don Young. She represented rural Alaska, you know, first Alaska Native statewide elected official. Just all these aspects of her candidacy, I think, really excited people. And and she's just, you know, a smart, charismatic, thoughtful person. And so she just had so much going in her favor that ultimately put her up in the top. Speaking as an outsider, it certainly seemed to me that what you were talking about earlier, these more moderate Republicans really seem to cotton to her. You mentioned her relationship with Don Young, of course, the former congressman whose death led to this special election and his family and also uh, his aides as well. And that was kind of remarkable because in other special elections, certainly you don't typically see Republicans, especially those who work in Congress for the deceased congressman, decide to come out and support the Democrat. Yeah, it was a, it was a totally fascinating dynamic. And I think a lot of that um, emerged after the special election and before the November general election, when Mary was sort of serving that interim term for really just a matter of months, um, that you saw a lot of sort of alumni 
of the Donnie Young office coalesce behind Mary. And there's there's a reason for that. I mean, Sarah Palin <laughs> doesn't have, I think, a great reputation nationally. I think her reputation might be even more negative in Alaska. So there's a lot of people for whom in Alaska, Sarah Palin was a, a non-starter. And just as an aside, like Sarah is like a fascinating political personality and she's there's sort of like many different Sarah Palins through history. And I mean, that's a whole digression and, and sidebar conversation. Because at one point she, of course, was this like incredibly popular governor, most popular governor in America, you know, but it, it's like almost a different person that we're talking about, like the Sarah Palin of like 2000, you know, 2006, 2007. Uh, but certainly Sarah Palin of of 2022 and the Sarah Palin who's running as a candidate for the special election, not super popular. And then there's Nick Begich. And that was the other Republican in the special election and ultimately in the general election. And um, I, I think this has been publicly reported, so I'm not speaking out of school or, or gossiping or anything like that. But um, uh, I, I don't think this is well known nationally, but Nick Begich had positioned himself as sort of a mentee of Don Young's. And he was Don Young's campaign chair, coach, I can't remember exactly, in 2020. And then he actually worked as an intern in the Don Young office in Washington, D.C., I think that subsequent year in in 2021. Um, You know, all is sort of like learning from, you know, the dean of the house and and this this person who's an institution in Alaska politics. I think Nick... And there's probably an understanding that Nick was ultimately interested in running for Congress whenever that seat may have opened up when Don retired or moved on or whatever. Um, But he's very much like a close supporter and ally of Don Young's. And then he he basically backstabbed Don Young and the sort of faith and and investment that Young had personally placed in Nick. And like this, this is at least as has been reported to me, and I've never heard Nick Begich public or otherwise contradict this, filed to run against Don Young. So you're you're chairing the campaign of somebody one cycle, and then you go work for him in DC as an intern that was, I think, kind of like a bespoke career. Like the Young office like created this position for Nick Begich to fill so he could get some experience in DC. And then you just turn around and run against him. So you can imagine the Don Young staff uh, didn't feel very warmly towards Nick Begich. Um, in fact, I, I, I think they would use uh, much more charged language for basically how he treated their former boss. And and so Nick Begich was a non-starter for a lot of these Republicans as well, just for, you know, like arguably a lack of character. <laughs> um, and, and so both of the Republicans on the ticket were not really viable options and Mary who is a pretty moderate person who had this relationship with Don Young who's from rural Alaska and Don Young as a, many Alaskans know is also from rural Alaska from Fort Yukon he was a, a tugboat um, captain on the Yukon I think is how he sort of started his career I mean, he just had all these commonalities and so I think it was sort of an acceptable alternative to a lot of people in this sort of Don Young world but there's like no way Nick Bagach was going to gurn any of these um, Don Young staffers support. So Jonathan, you decided not to run for re-election last year, and you are now a former state representative at a, still a very young age. 
What is next for you? You've been involved in a number of projects outside of politics. Could you imagine running for office again in the future? Yeah, well, I'm I'm just enjoying being a private citizen for, I mean, it kind of sounds crazy to say, but literally the first time in my adult life, because it was like college right into the campaign and the legislature, and then that's been yeah. the last 10 years. And so I haven't really had the opportunity to just exist as a normal person. Um, and, you know, be up for re-election every other year and raising money and being called back to Juno for special sessions, just everything else that sort of comes with the job. And to be clear, I feel so grateful for these last 10 years. And um, I, I can't imagine a better way to sort of spend one's 20s. You just learn a tremendous amount. Um, but uh, I, I mean, I do have a couple of non-political projects. There's a higher education organization I've been involved in starting and a, a fellowship program as well. Um, and I've, I've also been doing some federal policy work around the Chips and Science Act, which maybe isn't that well known, but it's this this policy that passed Congress in August that's looking at semiconductor policy and industrial policy in the U.S. and how we sort of, as a country, uh, uh, maintain maximum global competitiveness around these different um, critical technologies that are going to shape the future, uh, which has just been a long-running sort of passion and interest of mine. Um but I I don't think I'll be a stranger to politics in the future. I just don't know in what capacity or when or you know how or anything like that. Um, it could be running for office. It could be working for somebody else or behind the scenes. But um, I mean, I love Alaska, and I've also greatly enjoyed getting to sort of know the DC scene a little bit more as I work on this federal policy and Chips and Science Act uh, work. So. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll be in the mix in some form or fashion in the future, I think. Well, I am very glad to hear that. And before we let you go, Jonathan, where can folks follow you and learn about your work? Oh, gosh, I, I don't have I don't have like a, a, a turnkey uh, um, uh, apparatus for updates. But I mean, I guess I periodically tweet. <laughs> it's, it's like emphasis on on periodic. And I've got a, a personal website, um, jkt.com spelled out as the letters j-y-k-y-t-e and i i tried to just sort of you know if just to sort of myself have a more organized coherent sense of the different projects i'm working on um uh track stuff there as well um so i guess those are probably the two best places uh, we have been talking with jonathan christ Tompkins, former alaska state representative jonathan thank you so much for joining us on today's show thanks so much for having me it was wonderful to be on that's all from us this week thanks to jonathan christ Tompkins for joining us the down ballot comes out every thursday everywhere you listen to podcasts you can reach out to us by emailing thedownballot at dailycoast.com. If you haven't already, please subscribe to The Down Ballot on Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and review. Thanks to our producer, Walter Einenkel, and editor, Trevor Jones. We'll be back next week with a new episode. 